This is Law in the Time of COVID-19. I'm Adam Goldenberg. How do you conduct a jury trial without compromising physical distancing? I'll speak to two McCarthy-Tatro litigators who recently conducted Ontario's first civil jury trial in, well, the time of COVID-19. Law in the Time of COVID-19 explores the law and policy of pandemic response. We're looking at how governments, organizations, and individuals are managing the impact and meeting the moment. And because it wouldn't be a law firm podcast without a disclaimer, here's a disclaimer. McCarthy Tatro is providing this podcast as a public service, if we may say so ourselves. It may contain legal information, but it does not contain legal advice or a legal opinion, recommendation, or statement of policy of McCarthy Tatro. Here's our episode, Far Away Jury. On September 30th, 2020, Ontario's first civil jury trial of the COVID-19 pandemic got underway at the courthouse at 330 University Avenue in downtown Toronto. A judge, court staff, counsel, six jurors, and one alternate juror convened in a reconfigured courtroom behind masks and plexiglass to argue, hear, and decide a medical negligence case. Jury trials have since been suspended in Ontario as COVID-19 numbers have risen, but the future of trial litigation, in the coming years at least, will almost certainly look at least something like last year's physically distant affair. To find out what it was like, how it was different, and what they learned along the way, I spoke to the lawyers who won, my McCarthy-Tatro litigation colleagues Moya Graham and Leah Osler. Moya is a partner, and Leah is an associate in McCarthy-Tatro's litigation group in Toronto. We spoke on Thursday, January 7th. Moya, Leah, thank you both for joining us. Adam, thank you for having me. Thanks, Adam. We're excited to be here. So you are, as of now, the most experienced, or at least among the most experienced trial lawyers in the world when it comes to doing civil jury trials in a socially distant way. So Moya, let me start with you uh, on the basis of seniority alone, having done trials in person before COVID changed the way that we do everything. What was different and what did you learn in doing a trial in this particularly strange format with real live civil jurors in the room? So it's funny. We have been talking about this a lot because people are interested in the experience and the comments I have to make are a little bit off trend in the sense that while everybody's talking about conducting hearings and and motions and trials remotely under COVID, I actually did one in person. Um, And what I, what I learned first and foremost, the, the most exciting thing about trials in general but jury trials in particular, I think, from, from the perspective of, of, of a litigator, is the lack of predictability. You've got real people, they're telling their stories, they're answering questions, it's dynamic. You've got observers in the form of the jury who are taking in the information, hearing from witnesses for the first time and learning about the case. And then you've got the input also of the trial judge who manages the trial process. So there's a lot of variables involved and a lot of... Um, unpredictability that makes it exciting it also makes it um you know i think nerve-wracking in terms of the available experiences for for the litigator so as with everything in covid i think that 
COVID amplifies what already exists in a lot of ways. So right. um, experiences that are boring are more boring in COVID. Experiences that are stressful are more <laughs> stressful in COVID. And uh, I think the only exception might be things that are fun aren't more fun in COVID. But, <laughs> but, but the unpredictability of the jury trial in COVID was magnified by all the things that we couldn't anticipate and couldn't control. Um, I was reflecting on the fact that when we showed up for jury selection at the convention center, the Toronto, Metro Toronto Convention Center. Um, you know, cases were increasing day over day, like in the hundreds. We were only down in the about 700 range, but that was big at the time. It now seems small. And we were hour by hour thinking, we're not going to be able to proceed with the trial. There's no way this is going to go ahead. We hadn't seen what the courtroom was going to look like. We didn't know if witnesses were going to testify with their masks on where the jury was going to sit. We really didn't know anything. There were discussions about electronic briefs instead of paper briefs. And like we just had no all of those logistical things that the litigator looks to control in order to be able to focus on the things that are unpredictable. We had a plethora of additional ones to think about. So right. it was. Yeah, it was I, I didn't even it, believe yeah, I didn't believe the trial would go until the last day when we were waiting for the jury verdict. And then, oh, lo and behold, <laughs> we finished the whole thing. <laughs> it but was over. It, each day, honestly, each day leading up to the trial, as Moya said, and then during the trial, we thought it might be canceled. And so when when did you know for sure that, okay, this is going to happen, we're going to do this this trial, Moya? I think once we showed up at the, the the Metro Toronto Convention Center and we were picking the jury, I thought, okay, this is happening. We had our, had our trial judge assigned the week before. And so it was sort of an incremental process. Like, okay, that's a encouraging sign. And then I was invited to attend at the courthouse and see the setup. So that was an encouraging sign. So it was sort of incremental moment by moment. We, we It sort of started to sink in. But I think we all had skepticism that we were actually going to start. And even once we started, we had skepticism we were going to get through the whole thing, that it wasn't going to have to be converted to virtual right. or was going to be adjourned in, in the middle of it. And in fact, the jury selection process ended in the middle of our trial for other trials. So we got to finish ours, but we didn't get all the way through our trial before it was deemed uh, unsafe to, to continue with jury selection. Right. So, so the jury selection was at the convention center, but the actual trial was in a courtroom. Can you describe, Leah, what the courtroom looked like? Certainly. So the courtroom, it's interesting. It was one of the smaller courtrooms to begin with, but it made sense size-wise because there were restrictions on the number of people who could actually attend and be in the room physically at that time. And so I believe that the number was 21 who they could have physically in the courtroom. And that included counsel, jurors, the judge, registrar, all of the court staff, and it left very few numbers of seats available in the gallery for people to actually attend. So if counsel wanted to have their client there, it really restricted the numbers. So the biggest change was the numbers. And then on top of that, the physical layout was different in that um, the juror box was protected by plexiglass. And then each of the counsel tables were also protected by plexiglass around the table the, the full outer part, but also separating counsel, which we thought was very interesting because, you know, for a majority of it, we had to be in close quarters anyway. And so, so we were wearing masks and we were being socially distant where we could be, but it, it did seem a little bit funny to have that separating glass between the two counsel. And it made it a bit more difficult for us to pass notes or to 
discuss issues during the proceeding. But plexiglass was a it was a huge difference. Luckily, it was quite easy to see through, although we were several steps back from the judge to ensure that we had a safe distance from the judge and the registrar and from the jurors. So as Moya said, we were able to attend in advance and we tried different configurations to see how can we ensure how everyone can have a, a safe distance from each other, but still be able to see and not have, you know, five plus layers of plexiglass between them that might separate um, the judge and counsel or counsel and the, the jurors in a way that would make it more difficult to see. Sure. And so as the junior, Leah, when you're doing your cross-examinations, did the plexiglass prevent Moya from putting post-it notes on the podium in front of you saying, why'd you ask that question or make sure you cover this? <laughs> so it was it was a little bit more difficult. I, I would turn back a little bit just to be like, are, are we sure? But kind of did my thing with that. And it was a bit more difficult, though, in terms of passing documents to Moya that I thought she might want to use for her cross-examinations. And I'm sure we'll get into it, but some of our witnesses were there in person and some of them were virtual. And, and that required a lot of prep work. And, and we'll get into that, I'm sure. But for the witnesses who were there in person, sometimes you want to wave a document in the air or, you know, really bring something to their attention and to the attention of the jurors. And that was a, a little bit more difficult. But Moya still got her comments to me. We made it work. <laughs> All right. So, Moya, let's talk about the witness examinations. If some are in person and some are virtual, did that affect how you prepared to do direct and cross-examinations, knowing whether the witness would actually be in the courtroom with you or whether they would be on a video screen? And if so, how did that affect your prep? We'll get to the actual examinations in a moment. Yeah, so this wasn't actually the first time that I'd conducted uh, examinations by video in the context of an otherwise live trial. It was the first time I had done it in, the, in front of a jury. Um, but, but I actually reflected on the fact that through this process that I'd actually done it probably 10 times in other contexts where, for example, um, you know, I had a client who was in India who wasn't going to travel to Canada to testify. So he testified by video. I've had clients from the Netherlands who've been uh, cross-examined uh, by video. We did a trial up in Thunder Bay uh, and it wasn't practical to have some of the witnesses travel to Thunder Bay for sort of shorter bits of testimony. Um, so I'd done it lots of times before. And what I learned from those experiences was that you just have to be that much more prepared. So if you're going to cross-examine somebody by video in order to maintain the element of surprise, you're going to want to be able to email things sort of in real time or have some kind of system to electronically push documents in real time. So it's it's really, I think, the, the only major thing that you have to do is be just that much more um, prepared. The, the thing that was interesting to me about this experience was I had to have a witness testify by video who I really wouldn't have wanted to testify by video. A very important witness, key to our case, who presented very well in person. And I, I perceived a disadvantage in not having my, my, my witness, one of my expert witnesses, testify in person when the other side intended to have their witness testify in person. And I perceived a real disadvantage. And one of the takeaways I have from the experience is that I don't think that there was a disadvantage. In the end, the, the corresponding expert actually ended up testifying by video as well because they both decided that they didn't want to attend in person in the circumstances of, of the pandemic. Um, but 
that level of discomfort I still had, even though I had done it lots of times, was very interesting to me. And I think is something I'm going to work on shedding in the future uh, because I don't think it's all that helpful. And I think that, um, you know, more testimony by video, which can save clients some, some money and save some people some, some hassle is, is the way we're going. Sure. What makes you, what's the basis of your, your observation that the witness's testimony was as effective or sufficiently effective by video, despite your initial view that it would have been more effective to have that person in the courtroom? I think I got all of the evidence that I wanted from the witness and I didn't perceive a, um, a failure to connect uh, with the witness uh, or a, a failure to be able to effectively cross-examine because I, I, I conducted examinations in chief and cross-examinations by video and, by, and in person in the context of the same trial. And I, I felt as effective in the video examinations, both in examination for chief, examination in chief and in cross-examination as I did with the live witnesses. Um, so I, I don't know, I don't know, I don't have definitive uh, uh, evidence I can point to in order to, to say that there's no impact, but I, I, my, my self-reflection on the basis of the whole experience was that, that concern I had, that gut feeling that I had that we often trust, uh, just it wasn't borne out in the, my experience of the trial unfolding. And for my own part, next time, I'm just going to try to ignore that uh, and see how it goes, because I, I think we can do a lot uh, by video, even the context of a, of a trial that's otherwise conducted in person. Just to add to that, Adam, I think one of the unique and helpful things about having a jury rather than judge alone is sometimes you can see jurors' reactions to evidence as it's coming out. And so we were able to watch the jurors in real time react to the evidence that was being given over virtual testimony. And in this case in particular, there was a specific article and a diagram in that article that was really the theme of the case. And we went back to that article over and over and we used it on cross-examination and then we used it again with our own witness. So we were able to see the jurors pick up that article because helpfully we could give them a hard copy even though we had to do it virtually with both witnesses. So they would pick up their hard copy and they would be following along while our witness was giving her evidence. And I think that's a pretty good testimony that it was effective and they were listening and they were engaging even though it was virtual as opposed to in-person. Tell me about the role of the trial judge and the court staff, Moya. How was that different in this context than it has been in the other trials that you've done in the non-COVID era? So, I mean, most litigation counsel will agree, I think, that the court staff are some of the most important people uh, in, in the courtroom, getting to know them, uh, having them know you, trying to be helpful to them um, and, and, and the hopes that they will be helpful to you is really an important part of what we do in the regular uh, way of the world for a trial or, or any kind of court proceeding. Uh, it was even more so in COVID, like that amplifying effect was there in that relationship as well. We had unbelievable um, court staff um, who were, you know, understanding when we weren't, when we needed a little extra help um, in order to, to navigate the additional issues around, uh, around COVID. Um, and uh, so they were excellent. The trial judge was, in addition to doing everything that a trial judge normally does, was 
um, you know, very attentive to making sure that people felt like the processes in place were safe, um, given COVID, that the jury was, uh, you know, content with the way things were being conducted. There were lots of check-ins uh, with everybody, both in the, the presence and in the absence of the jury, which I think were really appreciated by everybody. And I was really amazed um, by, you know, the willingness of the jury to take part and, and fully engage in the process in these circumstances, as well as the court staff. We really got no hint of reticence uh, from, from anyone involved in the process, which was really special to see. And, mm-hmm. and they actually, they gave jurors an opportunity to speak to that issue when we were selecting them. They didn't ask that outright, but I think that if anyone had expressed discomfort in engaging in jury duties um, during the pandemic, that they would have excused them from that. That was very much the impression that I got. And um, none of the jurors who were ultimately selected expressed any kind of discomfort or hesitation to participate in the process. So we were we were so pleased. I was worried going into the selection that we wouldn't be able to find six people. And in fact, we found seven because we uh, the, the court decided that it was prudent to include an additional juror in the event that somebody became ill or otherwise unable to participate. And so we had seven jurors who participated through the entire process. Were there any expectations on the jurors or on the on the lawyers or others involved in the case about conduct outside of the courtroom in order to ensure that that safety was maintained to the extent possible inside the courtroom, Leah? Or were you all just left to your your own best judgment about how best to to follow the the rules and and the protocols to keep safe? It's a good question. Do you mean, Adam, in terms of our personal life, like going home and then coming back, or in yeah. terms of entering the courthouse? No, I mean, so I mean, were, after you went home at the end of the day, were you expected to behave any differently than you would if you were just being prudent and following the rules and not in the middle of a jury trial? So frankly, I, and Moya, correct me if you got a different impression, but I don't think that was ever communicated to us. I think they expected everybody to behave in a way that was safe and that would allow them to continue participating in the process in a, in a safe and engaged way. And this trial fell over the Thanksgiving long weekend. So helpfully, we had already concluded all of our evidence and our closing statements on Friday. And then there was a long weekend and the jurors returned to deliberate after that. And I don't believe that we received any instructions to not engage with family members or go to social gatherings, but it was pretty strongly implied, at least, that everybody was taking their duty seriously. And I think as part of that, um, that includes behaving in a way in your personal life that would allow you to continue in that manner. So that's after you left the courthouse at the end of the day. What about inside the courtroom? Were your movements or your activities in the court while the proceedings were taking place any different than they would have been? I I mean, I I imagine they must have been than in pre-COVID time, Moya. So it was all in the discretion of the trial judge. Uh, We didn't actually know until the the first day of trial, whether witnesses were going to have to, we knew we were all going to have to wear masks, but whether witnesses were going to be able to take off their masks to testify what the trial judge in our case uh, decided was that anyone who was not then speaking would wear a mask. So the jury wore masks the entire time. The judge wore a mask when not speaking. Counsel wore masks when not conducting their examinations. And the witness came in in a mask and took it off to, to give their testimony. So I would be sitting in the courtroom listening to um, uh, you know, the examination in chief of my friend and with my mask on. And if I wanted to make an objection, I would rise, remove my mask, make the objection, put it back on and, and sit back down. Um, 
so that's how we did it in that case. I imagine that in other cases, you know, in the discretion of the trial judge, it could be conducted differently, but that was how it was done in our case. Movement was restricted. So normally in a jury trial, if I wanted to hand out uh, uh, copies of a document that I was going to use to the jury, I would take the opportunity to walk up to the jury, smile, make eye contact, enhance my <laughs> credibility or rapport with them. Instead, I had to line them up on a dais before the jury even came in and instruct a court uh, staff member to, while wearing gloves and using sanitizer, distribute them to jurors who I was standing 30 feet away from. So I perceived a, a, a difference in terms of the ability to connect with the jury using sort of physical space and, 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 uh, and on eye contact, um, which I missed. I missed walking around the courtroom too. Like I missed walking up to the, the, um, to the dais and being able to hand documents to the judge and feeling my robes move and moving in the courtroom, all that stuff that really makes you feel like a lawyer. Totally. I, I missed it. I stood in one place mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, something was lost in that, but ultimately nothing that, that nothing that hampered the conduct of the trial. It only hampered my sort of, um, you know, superficial joy in, in what we, we do, if I can put it that way. Well, at least we were allowed to wear robes. At first we thought because the robing rooms were closed and we couldn't access those, we thought we might not be able to. And, and luckily we were, which makes it a lot easier. It wasn't a particularly long trial, but um, even two and a half weeks, it's nice to be wearing your robes. Now, Moya, you mentioned being 30 feet away from the jury. I, I'm a little bit spatially challenged, but that is either a very large courtroom or a, one that's configured differently than what I'm accustomed to. Can you, can you kind of paint the picture of what the floor plan was like and did it change in the course of the trial? And, and how involved were you also in deciding what the courtroom would look like as counselor? Was that simply conveyed to you as a decision that had been made by the court staff? Yeah, so it was all really in flux. Um, luckily, uh, I was able to attend the courtroom in advance with opposing counsel, and we sort of saw what had been set up. So the tables are all bolted to the ground. None of the furniture could be moved, and plexiglass had been installed. Um, and we were told there was, under no circumstance, any moving of any of the, the physical infrastructure that had been put in place. But we did have decisions to make around where people would sit. And one of the big discussions was where would the jury be? Because they can't all fit in the traditional jury box. So some of the, and it was all going to be within the discretion of the trial judge, but we got input from court staff and talked about it amongst counsel. Some of the options were half of the jury sits on either side of the courtroom with counsel in the middle. Um, there was a, 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 a suggestion from um, somebody at one point that the jury would actually sit behind counsel. So we'd be conducting our examinations, not able to see <laughs> the jury at all, which I was um, uh, quite against yeah, <laughs> all the available. No, no kidding. Yeah. That seemed like a bad one. So what we ended up doing was counsel sat at the very back of the three rows of counsel tables. So normally, you know, as any litigator would know, you'd sit at the front counsel table, you're close to the witness, you're close to the judge, the jury's uh, to the side. And, uh, that didn't allow safe distancing. So we sat at the very back council table. The jury was in two rows behind plexiglass to the left and distanced from us. And then the witness was in the traditional witness box. So we were far from everybody. We were far from the witness we were examining. We were very far from the trial judge and we were far from, from the jury, which was a little different. And because of all the plexiglass and the three rows of council table had all been prepped 
uh, to have counsel sitting at them, um, you know, in the event that that was going to be appropriate at some point, I guess. So in some cases, we were looking through several layers of plexiglass, including the corners with the seams, which made it hard to see people. So none of that was insurmountable. None of that changed uh, much about the way the evidence went in, but it did change the way we felt in the courtroom, I think. Because fundamentally, trial is like a human experience, right? It's, there's a human connection mm -hmm. aspect to it that's really important. Right. And, and on that point, I mean, one, there's a deep and rich literature, both legal and not legal, about the value of demeanor evidence and, and gauging a witness's facial reactions, both when you're examining them or cross-examining them as counsel, and when you're assessing their evidence as the trier of fact, whether the judge or, or, or member of a jury. And when you're that far away from the witness, especially compared to witnesses who are testifying on a screen where their face is blown up large, did that did that affect at all your perception of how the evidence was going? And let, let me start with you, Leah, on this, because I've, I've heard judges comment on the fact that when they watch witnesses testify on Zoom and the screen is, is all their face, they actually feel <laughs> that they have a better ability to gauge what the witness is really thinking or feeling as they're giving their evidence, subject, of course, to how reliable those perceptions ever can possibly be. But does that inform now when you think about the next trial you do, which witnesses you're going to want to be testifying in person and which you will be more willing to have on video or even prefer to have on video? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting question because I think whether they're in person or they're testifying virtually, um, the judge and the jury, they were able to see the face of the witness. And that's the most important part. But in this case in particular, we wanted to have our client, who was the physician, show various parts of his body when he was giving his evidence. So he, it was a bit more demonstrative. And it wasn't just about his face, because there were questions about, you know, how he conducted certain physical examinations. So we wanted him to have the ability to stand up and to move a little bit and to show, you know, his back or his shoulder. And that was more effective having him in person. But it's something that he could have done had he been required to testify virtually. So I think that you do lose some of that more demonstrative and, and the way that your demeanor and your body language, how that presents and the way that can affect the evidence and, and people's perception to that. So I think you, you might lose a little bit in some circumstances, but that being said, the fact that the jury was able to see the witness's face was very helpful. And we had screens available right in front of the jurors, right in front of the judge, and right in front of counsel. So there were three different screens set up so that everybody had full, clear view of the witnesses who were testifying virtually. And, and what about the witnesses, Moya, who were testifying in person? If you're, if you're that far away from them uh, on the other side of the courtroom and you're crossing a witness and you can't see the small visual uh, or facial tics or, or reactions that sometimes, not always, but sometimes when you're crossing are the hint that you're getting somewhere or a, a line of question is, questioning is one that you should drop or continue pursuing. Was that more difficult given how far away you were and there were multiple layers of plexiglass between you? Yeah, I would say it was. I think something was lost um, uh, for sure in that it wasn't it wasn't insurmountable. So like everything else, it, it didn't it didn't radically change the conduct of the trial, but it changed the way I think I felt about the examinations I was doing. Um, and I felt it in particular in, in my closing because I was very far from the jury. And with all of them wearing masks, I actually found it hard to tell 
Like, are they following me? Are they understanding what I'm saying? Like some of them are taking notes and that's sort of a helpful sign. But in the closing, in particular, I, I really felt that there that I just wished I wasn't so very far uh, away um, from the people I was trying to persuade. We, we helpfully had two jurors who were big nodders. And so we would look to them and see if they were nodding <laughs> and if they were nodding and there was a one woman who would write notes. So we would look for those types of cues and, you know, they're really exaggerated ones that, that was helpful for us. But I think that that's one loss is where we had the in-person witnesses you, and we were at a distance. It was hard to see those small visual cues, but for the virtual witnesses, sometimes there were technical difficulties and when there were glitches that could affect a line of questioning as well. So I don't think either option was perfect, but we made both of them work. Well, Lee, you'll remember this. Like I, when we weren't sure whether witnesses in person were going to be able to testify without their masks on or not, I seriously considered having our client testify by video, mm -hmm. even though he was going to be in the courtroom every day, because I thought like there's it, the jury is one thing, but there's just no way with the witnesses. And, and luckily our, our, our trial judge agreed and exercised his discretion to allow everyone to take off the mask to give their evidence. Mm -hmm. Let me pick up on that last point, Moya, and the, dis the, the discretion of counsel that to decide whether or not you wanted a particular witness to testify in person or not to the extent that you had that option. COVID is going to prevent for a little while anyway, there being other civil jury trials happening in a socially distant way. And there will be some period of time thereafter once the numbers hopefully go back down, but before enough people have been vaccinated to have a level of immunity that things start feeling more normal, that other jury trials will happen the way yours did. But then after that, there will be a return to something that feels like normality and we'll go back to doing trials not the same way, but in ways that more resemble how we used to do them before COVID happened. When we get to that point and you're preparing for a trial in the post-COVID era, how do you think, Moya, the experience of preparing for and doing this trial during the COVID time will affect your preparation and execution of your trial strategy thereafter? So I'll say two things. Uh, one is I was more prepared for this trial than I've ever been for a trial in advance because all those unknowns <laughs> created a fear in me that that um, Leo will tell you caused me to just want to be that much more prepared. I will take that with me because <laughs> I actually think it served us very well. Um, it did. So that's one thing. The, the second thing is that feeling of discomfort that I have and will admit to having as a kind of knee-jerk reaction to the idea that my witness doesn't get to be there in person if even post COVID, there are logistical reasons, cost reasons, scheduling reasons why that doesn't make sense. My, my goal is to try to hold on to the feeling I had at the end of the trial that it wasn't that big a deal and embrace it next time, uh, even in, in, in post COVID. Leah, any, any takeaways for you, not for doing trials in the time of COVID-19 necessarily, but doing trials, particularly jury trials after the time of COVID-19 from this experience? Yeah, I think what Moya said is very true, that it helped a lot to be overly prepared, both in terms of the logistics, but also any issue that could come up. So it was partially having extra copies of everything. But we also just spent a lot of time preparing because there was this sense of unknown. And I think that reflected both in terms of logistics, but also the trial generally, that we wanted to be overly prepared for everything that could possibly come up, whether it was a logistical issue or a legal issue or something with our witnesses. And so we invested a lot of time preparing 
before the trial and throughout the trial. And, you know, it's funny, we were, we were so prepared for a possible negative outcome to the trial that we thought of, you know, how do we challenge a decision? How do we, how do we bring a motion? What do we do? And we were so prepared that um, we were a little bit lost for words when we, when we ended up succeeding in the trial because we had prepared so much the other way. But I think that, you know, that's not, that's not a bad thing to have happened because it shows that we were thinking about all of the options, except of course, winning, I suppose. Well, there's <laughs> but, less, there's uh, less work to be... do. There's less work to do after <laughs> yeah. you win a trial than after you lose. Exactly. So. Exactly. That's right. But I think the biggest takeaway was that we were really ready for anything. And that's the way I'd like to feel going into my next trial. Well, thank you both very much for taking the time. This was very informative and I'm grateful to you both for your insight and congratulations. This might be the only civil jury trial that uh, that either of you does uh, before COVID is behind us, which I hope comes sooner than later. And I'm glad for you and for uh, for all of our colleagues that it, it turned out as well as it did. So thank you and congratulations again. Adam, thanks for having us. Thanks, Adam. Moya Graham is a partner and Leah Osler is an associate in McCarthy Tatro's litigation group in Toronto. Law in the Time of COVID-19 is produced by the incomparable Chloe Thomas. Special thanks to Lara Nathans, Trevor Lawson, Judith McKay, Elizabeth Burks, Ali Adams, Kat Cleon, and the entire team here at McCarthy Tatro. Not literally here, of course, but you know what I mean. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and tell your friends to do the same. You can also find lots more content on our firm's COVID-19 Recovery Hub, which you can reach from the main page of our website at www.mccarthy.ca. This is Law in the Time of COVID-19. I'm Adam Goldenberg. Thanks for listening, and please wash your hands.